Hello and welcome back to the Fall of the Roman Empire. It's Nick Holmes and this is episode 79 called Victory in Africa. We ended the last episode with Justinian's decision to send a fleet to Carthage. This was a bold choice. The last expedition sent by the Emperor Leo in 468 had probably been the greatest military disaster in Rome's entire history. Not surprisingly, almost everyone opposed the plan. In particular, Justinian's chief finance minister, John the Cappadocian, was dead against it. He argued that the risks far outweighed the rewards. But Justinian was a risk-taker, and after the Nika riots, he was desperate to boost his tarnished reputation. According to Procopius, when a bishop told him of a dream in which God had promised him a great victory in Africa, his mind was made up and preparations began. But I think what really pushed Justinian to commit to this venture was news of revolts against the Vandals in Tripolitania and Sardinia, which suggested the Vandal regime was looking vulnerable. We're incredibly lucky to have Procopius's detailed and probably largely accurate record of this great expedition, which set out in 533, especially since he was actually there as a member of Belisarius's senior staff, probably his chief legal advisor. To begin with, one very important feature of the expedition was that Belisarius was given supreme command and complete freedom to make all decisions without reference to Justinian. Such was Justinian's trust in Belisarius that, in Procopius's words, he, quote, gave him written instructions to do everything as seemed best to him, confirming that his acts would be valid as if the emperor himself had done them. The letter, in fact, gave him the authority of of an emperor, end quote. The army that Belisarius put together was essentially a smaller version of the one that had brought him victory at the Battle of Dara. 15,000 strong, it comprised 5,000 horsemen and 10,000 infantry. It was predominantly made up of regular soldiers, but they were among the best, if not the best, in the Roman army. 4,000 of the cavalry were the armoured horse archers that were now the elite of the new Roman army. As described by Procopius, these men were excellent horsemen, capable of shooting with deadly accuracy from the saddle, and then engaging the enemy with spears and swords. Probably about a thousand of these were Belisarius's own household regiment, the Bucellarii. There was also a thousand of the same auxiliary units that had fought at Dara with such deadly effect. 600 Massagetic Huns, probably the best light cavalry horse archers in the world, and 400 Heruli horsemen, noted for their speed and ferocity, and who had caused the Persians such problems at Dara. The 10,000 infantry were all Roman regulars, the disciplined heavy infantry that had also fought at Dara and who were the direct descendants, militarily speaking that is, of the Roman legionaries of old. There was also an additional force of 400 soldiers destined to sail to Sardinia to help Godus's revolt on the island. The fleet transporting this army comprised around 500 merchantmen and 92 warships called Dromans, armed with a battering ram on their prows to sink enemy ships. 30,000 sailors from Greece and Egypt manned these boats, most of them oarsmen. All told, this force was probably less than half that dispatched by Leo in 468, which we covered in episode 64. If you recall, 
That was a truly gigantic expedition. Procopius says it cost £130,000 of gold, a staggeringly large sum. For example, 61 times the annual tribute Theodosius II agreed to pay Attila. Drawing on the records left by Priscus of Parnium, Procopius claims it involved 100,000 troops. Another source says 1,113 ships were used. Most historians think, in reality, the numbers were smaller, probably around 50,000 soldiers and 1,000 ships, but still an enormous army. In contrast, Belisarius's army was much smaller, but it was still an elite group with the infantry and cavalry taken from the Eastern Front, making Justinian's endless peace with Persia critical to his ability to launch his Western gambit. By late June 533, Belisarius's armada was ready to sail. Our sources say that the soldiers were terrified by the prospect of a naval battle and determined to avoid it at all costs. Procopius confesses that his own fear of putting to sea was only eased by a dream in which Belisarius appeared to be victorious. When the fleet left port in Constantinople, the patriarch Epiphanius blessed Belisarius's ship and presented him with a newly baptised and converted soldier. The initial progress was slow. The fleet stopped for five days in Heraclea in Thrace to take on board horses. Many more would later join the army in Sicily, courtesy of the Ostrogoths who agreed to supply the expedition in a brief rapprochement between the two powers. Then a lack of wind delayed the ship's exit from the narrow straits of the Hellespont. Putting in at Abydos, there was a fight among the Huns who were bored and got drunk. A man was killed. Belisarius acted decisively. He had the two men who had committed the murder impaled on a hill, visible to everyone in the fleet. He then addressed his troops, saying that if they didn't maintain their discipline, they wouldn't survive, let alone triumph, in this expedition. Procopius says the men listened in earnest, and they were so fearful of the coming conflict that they bowed their heads in agreement. Time and again we hear from Procopius how Belisarius could deliver messages like this to his soldiers, which they respected. He didn't deliver pep talks. Instead, he had an ability to tell his men what they didn't want to hear and convince them they needed to up their game to succeed. And I think this was one of the many things about him that marks him out as one of the greatest commanders in history. Once in the open sea of the Aegean, the fleet made better progress, but Belisarius was worried it might break up and some ships could go astray, so he made the three ships containing him and his retinue more conspicuous by painting their sails with a red stripe, hanging lights on their prows at night and using trumpets to announce when they were raising and dropping anchor. In this way, the large number of vessels kept together as they made their way round the treacherous Cape of Matapan in southern Greece, where storms could blow up at a moment's notice. Belisarius was then forced to put in at Methone on the southern Greek coast. A disaster had 
struck unexpectedly. Large numbers of men were ill because the main provisions in the form of hard biscuits had gone mouldy and were poisoning them. Procopius says it was John the Cappadocian who was to blame since he ordered the biscuits to be baked only once to save money on firewood instead of twice, which was required to keep them fresh on a long journey. Belisarius was furious when, according to Procopius, 500 of his men died from poisoning. This seems a large number and there's just a possibility that Procopius exaggerated it to discredit John the Cappadocian, who, as he described in the secret history, was someone he particularly reviled. Whatever the truth, Belisarius purchased new rations for the army and sent a report to Justinian complaining about John the Cappadocian's potentially disastrous penny-pinching. The next problem was to keep the water fresh. Procopius describes how the water taken on board at the island of Zakynthos spoiled by the time they reached Sicily because there was a lack of wind to propel the ships and the journey took 16 days, much longer than expected. He mentions that Belisarius's wife, Antonina, who had insisted on travelling with him, had kept the jars of water on their boat fresh by covering them with sand, thereby keeping them covered from the sun, which she knew was what caused the water to spoil. This is interesting because Procopius was scathing about Antonina in his scandalous secret history, describing her as domineering and unfaithful. But at this point in his writings, he described her as a devoted and practical wife. At this point, probably most contemporaries would not have given Belisarius's expedition much chance of success. But it was helped by two pieces of good luck. First, it could dock and resupply in Sicily, courtesy, as I've already mentioned, of the support from the Ostrogoths, who had no love for the Vandals and were going through a pro-Roman phase. We'll cover the relations between Ostrogothic Italy and the Eastern Empire in a future episode, but suffice to say, the Ostrogoths were hugely helpful to Belisarius's expedition by allowing him to use Sicily as a staging post and also to take on board large numbers of horses. Second, Procopius says it was he himself who next discovered a game-changing piece of news. The Vandal fleet had sailed with 7,000 of its best troops to Sardinia to put down Godus's revolt. This revolt had, of course, originally been one reason why Justinian thought it was a suitable moment to attack. And he was proven right. Procopius describes how Belisarius sent him to Syracuse purportedly to purchase supplies for the fleet, but really to ask about the whereabouts of the Vandal fleet. There he unexpectedly met a childhood friend from his hometown of Caesarea in modern Gaza. Now this man was a merchant who'd just returned from a trip to Carthage, and he had a vitally important piece of information. He'd just seen the Vandal fleet sailing away for Sardinia. 
This was too good to be true. Belisarius was nothing if not decisive. He immediately gave the orders to sound the trumpets for the Roman fleet's departure. The troops were told there was nothing to worry about since the Vandal fleet had gone. This was particularly morale-boosting since they had long been terrified of a naval battle. Within two days, and after a brief stop at Malta, they beached on the headland of Caput Varda, now called Ras Cabudia, in the province of Bizacena. It had been about three months since they left Constantinople. What now? Belisarius decided against a naval attack on Carthage. That had been Basiliscus's strategy in 468 when the Vandals had destroyed the Roman fleet with fire ships. Instead, he ordered his soldiers to build a fortified camp in traditional Roman fashion and to prepare for a land attack on Carthage. Next, he began a charm offensive to win the hearts and minds of the native Roman African population. To this end, he organised a public execution of looters who refused to pay for supplies. Officers were told to enforce strict instructions that all supplies must be fully paid for in cash and that the locals should be treated with great respect. To appeal to the pro-vandal segment of the population, he even spread the story that the army was there only to put Hilderic, the rightful vandal king, back on the throne. After three days of rest at Caput Varda, just long enough to bring the horses back into condition and for the troops to reacclimatize to the land, Belisarius led the army north towards Carthage. Meanwhile, on the Vandal side, there was panic. Gelimer had been completely caught out by the Romans' arrival. He'd just dispatched the fleet to Sardinia and his troops were widely dispersed. Belisarius had landed while he was hunting on his royal estates at some distance from Carthage. Indeed, Belisarius happened to land midway between those royal estates and the city of Carthage, meaning that Gelimer could not take command of the defence of the city. So instead, he sent messengers post-haste to his brother Amatus, who was in Carthage, instructing him to execute the unfortunate Hilderic and to advance to meet Belisarius while his nephew Gibimundus gathered troops from the west to join him. Then Gelimer himself set out with all the troops he could gather, which seems to have been an enormous force, although we have no numbers, as I will discuss later. Later, to attack the Roman camp. The Romans marched north for four days and on the 13th of September they reached the town of Ad Decimum. Belisarius had sent 300 of his armoured horse archers under the command of John the Armenian to reconnoitre the Vandal positions in front of Carthage. There they met Amatus as he advanced down the road from the city. But the Vandals weren't in battle formation. Instead, they were advancing in groups of only 20 to 30 men. The Romans easily shot them down and charged the survivors in the process, killing Amatus himself after he had, according to Procopius, bravely slain a dozen Romans. 
The next engagement happened about five miles inland when Gibimundus's cavalry coming from the west and probably a few thousand strong collided with the 600 Massagetic Huns who were covering the Roman left flank. It was the first time the Vandals had seen Huns, and Procopius describes an initial standoff between them in which the Vandals looked dumbfounded at these Asiatic steppe nomads, too afraid to attack them, until the Hunnic leader declared that the Vandals were, quote, a ready feast, and the Huns charged forward. The Huns made short work of the Vandals, who Procopius says... Quote, were all disgracefully destroyed. Yet Procopius is adamant that Gelimer could still have won the Battle of Ad Decimum despite these two reverses, for it seems he still had a huge number of cavalry with him, although we have no precise details of the numbers. Procopius says he was advancing towards Carthage on an inland road that ran parallel with the coast road the Roman army was taking. Because of this, both sides were unaware of each other until Gelimer realised Belisarius was very close and he swung right to attack the Romans. Things started well for the Vandals. They easily won a skirmish for control of some hills that separated the two armies. 800 of Belisarius's mounted archers chose to retreat, and it looked as if the Vandals would crash into the Roman army and push it into the sea. Procopius says that, quote, so numerous appeared the force of the Vandals, end quote, that they could easily have defeated the Romans. But then something totally unexpected happened. The Vandals stopped. Procopius explains this was because Gelimer came across his dead brother's body and was overcome with grief. Both sides paused the Vandals to carry away Amartus's body and bury it, the Romans to regroup under Belisarius's command. Procopius points out that up to this point, Belisarius hadn't known about John the Armenian's successful dispersal of the Vandals advancing from Carthage or of the Huns' success in destroying the Vandals attacking from the west. But when he was in full possession of the facts and realised he was also facing Gelimer's main army, he launched a ferocious attack on the Vandals, who, quote, having already fallen into disorder and being now unprepared, didn't withstand the Roman onslaught, but fled with all their might, losing many there, and the battle ended at night. End quote. Procopius's account of this part of the battle is far too brief. Was the turning point really Gelimer's remorse about his dead brother? Did the Vandals really stop to bury him? I think Procopius might have been too keen to make a human story of a battle that in reality had a more purely military explanation. I suggest the missing link was the quality of Belisarius's mounted archers. Let me explain. Throughout Procopius's account of the battles between the Vandals and Romans, and in the next episode we'll hear the same in another major battle, it is conspicuous that whenever 
the Vandal horsemen came into contact with the Roman cavalry, they were routed. John, the Armenian, put them to flight in front of Carthage when he killed Gelimer's brother. The Huns regarded them as a ready feast, and Belisarius also routed Gelimer's main army. It's noticeable that these were all cavalry battles. At no point were Roman or Vandal infantry involved. So, what was really going on? One thing we know is that the Vandals had no horse archers. We also know that every single one of the Roman cavalry was a mounted archer. You may remember how Procopius described right at the start of his history of the wars the extraordinary skill of the Roman mounted archer, able to shoot from the saddle with perfect precision and power. I suggest that was the critical advantage the Romans possessed over the Vandals in the 6th century. A hundred years earlier, the Vandals had triumphed over Western and Eastern Roman armies, but the difference in 533 was that they met a very different type of Roman army. Yes, the Roman heavy infantry were largely the same, although under Belisarius's leadership they were probably better disciplined and better trained than they had been a century before. But what really made the difference was the Roman mounted archers. I suggest it was the influence of the Huns, and in particular the ferocious conflict with Attila nearly a century before in the 440s, which had caused the Romans to adopt Hunnic-style tactics and focus on mounted horse archers as their shock troops. In this way, the Roman army was reborn. In contrast, the Vandal army hadn't changed at all. The Vandals didn't prize archery and there were no Vandal horse archers. In short, the Vandal army was now outdated. It had been an effective fighting force in the 5th century, but in the 6th, and facing probably the best army in the world, it was completely inadequate. Gelimer compounded the Vandal problems by making some spectacularly bad tactical mistakes. After his defeat at Ad Decimum, he retreated west to the plain of Bulla and the road leading to Numidia rather than falling back on Carthage. It's possible he felt if they retreated to Carthage, they would be trapped by the Romans in front of the city walls. But he missed an opportunity to defend his capital city, which still had the advantage of strong Roman walls. This meant Belisarius could head straight to Carthage with the Roman fleet moving in parallel along the coast. There was no resistance. The city's inhabitants opened the gates. The chain which protected the harbour was reeled in. The Roman fleet entered the harbour, although most of it sailed to the nearby port of Stagnum, since there were quite simply too many boats to dock in Carthage. Procopius describes a beautifully tranquil scene as the Roman army reached the city in the evening. Quote, the Carthaginians opened the gates and burned lights everywhere, and the city was brilliant with the illuminations that whole night, and those of the vandals who'd been left behind were sitting as suppliants in the sanctuaries, end quote. The next day, on the 15th of September 533, Belisarius made his formal entry 
into the city. He strictly forbade any looting. He wanted his soldiers to be treated not as conquerors, but as liberators. And so they were. When he was completely satisfied that the city was safe and that both his soldiers and its inhabitants were at peace with each other, he made his way to the Vandal's royal palace. There he sat on Gelimer's throne. Local merchants rushed in to complain that the Roman sailors had stolen their cargoes the night before. Belisarius promised them compensation and instructed the admiral of the fleet to provide this, something which Procopius says never in fact happened, for the admiral named Colonimus was a scoundrel. Belisarius then invited his generals and senior officers to enjoy a lavish lunch which had been prepared by the palace staff for Gelimer. Procopius was there and enjoyed it as much as the rest of the Roman top brass. Quote, we feasted on that very food that the servants of Gelimer had prepared and they poured the wine and waited upon us in every way. End quote. But the battle for Africa wasn't over yet. At that very moment, Gelimer was mustering his forces for another battle. Yet Belisarius was the hero of the hour. He had recaptured Carthage with very few losses, something which the emperors Majorian and Leo had only dreamt of. Procopius could put it no better when he said, quote, It fell to the lot of Belisarius on that day to win such fame as not one of his contemporaries ever won, nor indeed any men of ancient times. And that ends this episode. Thanks so much for listening, and I hope you enjoyed it. And in the next episode, which will be in a week's time on the 9th of March, we'll continue with the extraordinary story of Justinian and Belisarius. And in the meantime, please do leave a review if you like the podcast, and do also check out my website, nickholmesauthor.com. Link in the show notes to find maps, blogs, and a free ebook. Thanks for listening, and see you next time. <laughs>